Hi, I'm Jake Parker with the What's Your Story podcast. Here I talk with my guests about their life experiences, as well as current and long-term goals, and what gets them through the ups and downs. If you enjoy the show, please rate and subscribe. And don't forget to visit my website, jparkerfitlife.com, for access to my Instagram account, blog, and more. Hi, guys. Welcome back to the What's Your Story podcast. Today I have Mike Gibbs back on the podcast. He's with Elite Fitness now. He has been a guest on the podcast once, and I remember him talking about that he has a lot of experience working with and researching on hormones. And recently, as I I like to kind of get into different niche topics and the in and outs of nutrition and fitness, I was reading and writing a little bit on hormones and realized that there's a lot that was up in the air for me and that I didn't really know about. And I thought it'd be fun to kind of talk to Mike and uh, get his input on the different hormones that I was reading about. Thank you, Jake. Thanks, Mike, for coming on the show. Thank you, Jake. So as Jake mentioned, my name is Michael Gibbs. I'm a nurse practitioner, strength and conditioning specialist, and a yoga instructor. And in the practice of medicine, um, you deal with hormones quite a lot. Um, but I also have some experience with not only the traditional hormones most people think of, things like that you would do replacing an internal medicine environment, things such as thyroid hormone, things such as insulin. But I've got a very large background with androgens as well as anabolic steroids. So, you know, Jake, it's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Yeah. And so, first of all, this was something I uh, had texted you a little bit about. Uh, explain to me again what exactly the difference is between a neurotransmitter and a hormone because it seemed like a lot of times it wasn't exactly clear what uh, which ones were one, which one or the other. Very fair point. So they're actually extremely different. So a hormone is basically something that's made out of cholesterol, uh, at least the steroid is, and it affects a bodily process. The hormone insulin takes sugar out of your out of your blood and sends it into your cells. Um, testicles produce testosterone, which is responsible for, say, male secondary sex characteristics, although it's present in women as well, things like the deeper voice, more muscular body, body hair. Um, hormones like estrogen are what make, make a woman female. Um, they're responsible for breast development. Estrogen and progesterone are part of the menstrual cycle as well as what's necessary to maintain you know, what makes a woman a woman. These are certain examples of, say, hormones. A neurotransmitter is something like serotonin, which is what makes your brain feel really good. That's why sometimes after you eat a very high-carb meal for a period of time, you're very happy. A neurotransmitter could also be something like uh, epinephrine or norepinephrine, which we call adrenaline, which is really that you know fight or flight, um, what's going on where you know you're getting some degree of of excitement um, or fear. Now, they often work together, for example, if you're overtraining or if you get very scared and the body produces epinephrine and norepinephrine, this is telling the brain what to do and it's also telling the blood vessels what to do, for example, that neurotransmitter will then tell the blood vessels to constrict, to send more blood to the heart so the body is better prepared to fight and less, say, blood to the fingertips. But when that also happens, the body will also produce some hormones such as cortisol, which is a a stress hormone, which will then prepare the rest of the body to either deal with a fight or a trauma. So there is an interplay between neurotransmitters, which basically you can think of as, as, as something between a nerve and a cell or basically something that goes on in the brain versus a hormone, which is typically manufactured in an organ in our body, such as the testicles, such as the ovaries, such as the thyroid gland, and it affects more of the entire body. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I like the breakdown of just simply being loosely brain versus being produced in the body. Uh, I thought that was interesting that you mentioned that, that the first thing that jumped to mind for me was when you talked about serotonin being released from eating a high carb meal. And it's, it's, you know, just those really delicious and high calorie foods. It's interesting because it makes me reflect on uh, part of the reason why a lot of people battle with weight and obesity and things like that, is that they, they, are psychologically attracted to the food and there's those psychological things that are sort of beyond their control and that are habit forming. I just think that that's, that part is interesting. Well, the, that's the, that's the reality is they are very habit forming because certain foods, 
such as, let's say, pasta, it does produce serotonin, which is a very good feel-good hormone for a period of time, and it does. And people are seeking that feel-good. But what it also does is it raises blood sugar. And as blood sugar goes up, the body can't have that much sugar in the blood, so then the, the pancreas produces insulin, which then sends that sugar out of the blood into the tissues, the body's tissues, and then at that point, hunger is then introduced. So there's a massive interplay of what's going on between these neurotransmitters and hormones. Yeah, so is that specifically just the carbs that have that effect? Well, I mean, anything at some point um, through glyconeogenesis could become sugar, but Mm -hmm. for the most part, it's carbohydrates that are causing that rapid rise in blood sugar and then the rapid rise in insulin. But it's not all carbohydrates. It's just certain carbohydrates. And that, that release of serotonin as well? Uh, well, all carbohydrates at some degree will produce serotonin. Mm-hmm. But certain ones will produce it more. So it's it's these very large, high-carbohydrate meals that really have that kind of serotonin effect. Whereas something that's mm-hmm. more balanced, that's say 30% protein, 40% carbohydrates, uh, 30% fat, really doesn't have a massive impact on blood sugar the same way the higher carb meals do, which doesn't mm-hmm. cause this massive impact with regards to insulin. And it kind of balances out these two hormones that are responsible for blood sugar, both insulin and glucagon in the body. And it produces much more of a state of wellness and, and, and doesn't affect so negatively other hormones in our body, which can occur from a high carb meal, even though the serotonin feels great. Yeah, yeah and that's why you're a proponent of the uh zone diet like you were telling me about just because of that balance really yeah the reason i like the zone diet it's about balance and because the, i mean we've seen what happens with these high carbohydrate diets mm-hmm. they create this rapid rise in blood sugar then they create this rapid rise in insulin which then makes somebody too hungry then they eat more their blood sugar rises and that causes this ob- central obesity this uh, belly fat around the abdomen and that leads to can lead to prediabetes and then diabetes and then cardiovascular disease. So I don't like the high carbohydrate diets. What I what I really hate though are the ketogenic diets because if you don't have any mm-hmm. any glucose, what's actually going on in your body is your body will make it by breaking down your muscle tissue, which is part of the rapid reason or weight rapid weight loss in the ketogenic diets is people are really losing a lot of muscle. But in addition to losing the muscle, it's a lot of stress on the body to be in a ketogenic state. So that causes then a high degree of inflammation, which then causes a high degree of cortisol, which breaks down more muscle. And I've seen, I've seen numerous diabetics, you know, and be in a lethal place of ketoacidosis because you know they couldn't process sugar properly. So I don't mm-hmm. understand the the fat of ketogenic diets. We we explored ketogenic diets with uh, Atkins starting in the eighties. And what was interesting is Atkins did prove a point. This concept of a calorie is a calorie and macronutrient balance, I mean, look, it's kind of crazy. I mean, from Newton's, I'm sorry, from the physics law, of second law of thermodynamics that says, you know, a measure of heat or measure of energy is energy that can't be created nor destroyed but transformed. Yes, that is true. One calorie of, heat, of, of food will can be converted into the body of eight through ATP, you know, one calorie's worth of energy. But what it ignores is the actual hormonal component of food. And Atkins, and I'm not a fan of Atkins' diet, but he did prove a point where he basically said, eat a dozen eggs covered in butter and bacon for breakfast and then have a steak for lunch and then you know, have three steaks for dinner and you'll still lose weight. And people do because their tissues are actually mm-hmm. dying because of lack of insulin. So I believe that's what people like about the ketogenic diet is they don't have to think about what they're eating. The problem is you know, yeah. they're, not in, they're not really in a healthy state either. Yeah, and it seems like that's the complaint you always hear from people being uh, on the ketogenic diet is that they're really low in energy and just don't feel well and are mentally foggy. And those are just all implications of uh, what you're talking about there and not having any of the glycogen carbohydrates in the system. Yeah, and then they try and do things like medium chain triglycerides like coconut oil. And then we find that when you take that, that actually raises your LDL cholesterol. So then it puts you in a more of a cardiovascular risk state to try and get energy. So. I really hate the ketogenic diets. Mm-hmm. So going back to the carbs, what uh, what sort of carbs do you like to recommend to people to eat that? I know that I think everyone knows that um, foods high in sugar will spike your, your blood sugar, but 
what other sort of foods will easily spike your blood sugar? And then how do you compare that to the sugars and fruits and natural things like that? Well, you know, it's interesting you say that. We all have an enzyme in our mouth called salivary amylase. And that instantly breaks down, for the most part, starch into simple sugars. So if you were to eat a bagel, um, white bread, whole wheat bread, both, both occur, although the white bread's a little worse, instantly that break, bagel in your mouth starts to break down into sugar. So by the time it actually gets into your stomach, it's entering your bloodstream fairly rapidly. So bread, pasta, for the most part, they cause a massive rise in blood sugar. Now, if you actually look mm-hmm. at the glycemic index and the glycemic load of some of these foods, they're really high. And in certain cases, certain you know starchy carbohydrates actually have just as high, if not a higher glycemic index, meaning the impact they have on blood sugar than actual table sugar itself. Wow, I never realized that. So, because if we look at if we if, if we look at you know the ones that are really bad, the white potato, white bread, white pasta. But if we're looking at white bread, the glycemic index is, say, 70-something, 72, 75. They're all going to be different when you read it. But if we look at whole wheat bread, the glycemic index is still in the 70s. So it's not that much different. The exceptions when it comes to grains are actually slow-cooked, but not instant, but slow-cooked oatmeal and actually barley. And both of those have a glycemic index in the 40s. So they have the least impact on blood sugar upon any of the grains that are there. And what about foods like rice? You know, I'm not a fan of grains in general. Um, brown rice mm-hmm. does have a much lower glycemic index than, 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 say, wheat. I tend not to like grains under normal circumstances because of what I've seen with regards to blood sugar. Grains also have something called anti-nutrients in them, which actually keep you from absorbing certain things. And grains for many, but not all, but for many people can actually be inflammatory. I'm a perfect example. I have other friends that are examples. I have arthritis everywhere because I wasn't always so sophisticated in my training. When I was younger, um, I did a lot of crazy things. I did a lot of running. I did a lot of bodybuilding. Did some powerlifting. I did martial arts for 20 plus years. And with that, especially martial arts, comes a lot of arthritis. Now, my thumb was so bad that I literally needed to get it injected every three months just to be able to use my right hand. And when I stopped eating grains, I no longer need to get my right thumb injected. And I have another friend uh, that's a pharmacist that uh, was considering knee replacement surgery. He gave up grains, and within two weeks, you know, his knee's not bothering anymore. And I've seen so many people with acne problems that give up grains, dairy, and legumes. So... Look, I'm not saying everybody needs to give up grains. There's some benefits of whole grains. I'm just saying that grains, you know, have some properties that I don't like, mostly related to the rapid rise of blood sugar. Um, and also, if anyone's got any kind of a leaky gut component, some of the components in grains can actually trigger an autoimmune response. It's not that the grains are so bad, but in certain mm-hmm. cases they can be, plus the grains that we're eating now are not the grains that people ate 50 and 100 years ago. So Yeah, yeah so my other question was, what, what uh, why why do you think that people feel like the whole grains is so much more of a healthy option when it sounds like in reality it's really not that big of a difference? Well, anything's better than nothing, and mm-hmm. you know I, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but we've got a lot of uh, farms and a lot of other people that are involved in promoting grains. So. Yeah, that's what I was kind of leaning towards. So, you know, if we're going to pick one, look, the whole grains are much better than the, the non-whole grains, but I'm, I'm still not a fan of grains. I get my carbohydrates uh, through fruits and vegetables. Okay. And, you know, people ask what that looks like, and it's... The reason, you know, we like the 30-30-40 nutrition is it works. I can't... There's not a person that I've had as a, as a client that if they follow the workout program and they follow the nutrition, we can't get them to 10% body fat. It's easy. And they feel good. If we get them below 10% body fat, their performance degrades. If we get them much above 10% body fat, you know, 11, 12, they're feeling great. I think the average seal is around 13%. So that's perfect. But once Mm -hmm. we start getting above 13%, that's when, you know, they're carrying around extra weight, which is also suboptimal. So it's really, everything is is really about finding balance. But uh, my carbohydrate intake, for example, with my, my veggie omelet this morning, I had three cups of blueberries. So... I'm getting my carbs because I don't believe in being in a diet without carbs. Um, but I'm getting my mm-hmm. carbohydrates, but I'm getting them from fruits and vegetables. 
And what's interesting is if you actually look at the micronutrients that are actually in fruits and vegetables, the vitamins, the minerals, and most importantly, the polyphenols, the magnitude of what you're getting on a calorie per calorie basis from fruit compared to actual grains, it's, it's dramatic. It's like, it's almost like there's 10 times more nutrients per calorie. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's important to note. Do you, would, would you say you work mostly with men because the body fats that you're talking about, those are, are for men, whereas women have a different baseline set. Yes, absolutely. I'd say, I mean, predominantly with those percentage of body fats, we're talking about men, but we don't have any problem getting women to a good level of body fat either. Mm-hmm. What yeah. is the, what is about the, uh, what, what would the equations be about, uh, for, for women for about 13 to 10%? A, a very athletic female coming in around 15% is pretty, is pretty good. We've gotten some that are less. Um, the, the problem is once we start getting women, say below 10% body fat, it has such a ne- negative impact on the, uh, on them with regards to the menstrual cycle. Many of them cease menstruating, um, because their hormones mm-hmm. change. And as we get into that amenorrheic state, um, we're, we're losing estrogen. And as we're losing estrogen, we're, we're losing bone density and things. So, you know, it's, it's all about balance. Yeah. I, I was really curious. I'm glad you went into your specific carbohydrate intake because that's what I was going to ask was how you are able to keep your carbohydrates high when you, you aren't eating any grains. And so would you say that that's probably easily over 200 carbs a day or more? Oh, I definitely get more than two, I, I definitely get more than two hundred grams because I need forty percent of my calories. So mm-hmm. I, I and that's all. I, yeah, that's I get all fruits and vegetables. Fruits and vegetables, but I do have some starchy vegetables as well. I am mm-hmm. a fan of uh, yuca or cassava, and I'm also a fan of sweet potatoes. So I get some there, but predominantly fruits and then some starchy vegetables. But it's fruits and vegetables where I'm getting all my nutrition from, at least carbohydrates. Must be quite a bit of volume of food every day. Uh, yeah. Which yeah. is kind of interesting because the majority mm-hmm. of what's going on with people um, in the developed world, although to a lesser degree than non-developed world, is obesity. And I see all these crazy calculations, do this, don't do this, swap this food, don't swap this food. And I tell people, you don't need that many calories because your body can burn fat. We all have enough fat on us to burn for lots of our endeavors. And fat is very efficient fuel. And I can explain to you why if you desire. But we don't need that much. But what we actually need is the body's ability to actually convert fat into energy. Because it's so darn efficient at it if you don't have high insulin levels. But we need the body to really perform perfectly. So you can't overeat the right foods for the most part. Just think about it this way. If you had 12 egg whites for breakfast, you're probably going to get enough protein. And if you had that with three cups of berries and some almonds, three cups of berries is 200 calories. There's uh, about 16 calories in an egg white. So 16 times 10 is 160. So times two is 200. So now you're at 400 calories. Eat 150 calories of almonds. You're at 550 calories and you are full. Mm-hmm. And then you have a lunch. Um, eight ounces or 10 ounces of chicken breast, you know, three cups of vegetables and two apples and some more nuts. Okay, so you added another 800 calories. So now you're at 1,300 calories. Now I'll have a nice dinner. I mean, eight, 10, 12 ounces of chicken or fish, add a good-sized sweet potato, add about a pound of vegetables, tablespoon of olive oil, and now you're in that you know 2,500-calorie-a-day range. But you had to work for it, and that's for a big you know muscular mm-hmm. athlete. And that's why we have no problem getting people to their percentage of ideal percentage of body fat. But in the process of doing that by keeping insulin levels low, we're in a position where we can boost growth hormone because growth hormone and insulin kind of have this exact opposite relationship. And cortisol goes up, which makes you fat and eats your muscles when your blood sugars and and insulin levels are high. So we just need to balance those hormones and then everything sort of works itself out. Yeah. So going back to the whole... Uh, fat as a source of energy and I guess kind of goes into another one of the things I wanted to talk about which is uh, the hunger hormones ghrelin and leptin how do those play into our exercise and health and uh, our diet now I will tell you that I am absolutely not an expert on those two hormones since they're not something you can prescribe Mm -hmm. Um, but what I will tell you is 
they're the, the, the people that have a higher fat diet um, tend to have uh, what's called less leptin resistance. So they tend to be in a position where when the, the body knows that it, uh, it's eaten sufficiently, it's not still hungry. So that's the other reason we like the uh, moderate carbohydrate, moderate fat, moderate protein. But it's also from an energy perspective. I don't want to get into real heavy-duty depth of the Krebs cycle. But if we, mm-hmm. ta- if we take one gram of carbohydrate, uh, metabolism is not calories in and calories out. That's the uh, oversimplified version. Metabolism is about making sure the body has enough energy to meet its metabolic demands. And what I mean by that is the currency that the body uses for energy is, is something called ATP or adenosine triphosphate. That's what we use for everything. So when we're dealing with one gram of fat, which is nine calories, we can make roughly 360 ATP molecules, which is a lot. And if we're dealing with one gram of carbohydrates, we can make roughly 56 uh, ATP molecules. But people would say, well, fat has double the calories. So, okay, let's double that. So that means, you know, you're getting roughly 360 calories per, I'm, I'm sorry, 360 ATP molecules from, not, from nine calories worth of fat and you're getting about 150 mm-hmm. ATP molecules from nine grams of carbohydrates. I'm sorry, nine calories of carbohydrates. So we're dealing with much more efficient fuel if your body's able to burn fat for energy, but your body will never be able to burn fat for energy if your insulin levels are high. So what are the biggest contributors to normalizing your, your insulin then? Well, it depends where we start. If we all start out, none of us should have insulin resistance. So mm-hmm. let's break it down into the two types of diabetes. Type one is basically when we're young, our pancreases just don't work. There's absolutely nothing we can do for this population other than give them insulin for life. Now, type two diabetes is the type that we can really do a lot for. So if we don't raise, rapidly raise our blood sugar and we're not a diabetic, we're not going to produce a lot of insulin. If we are a diabetic and a diabetic type two diabetic or the adult onset, the obese type of diabetes is a problem of two things. The first problem is something called insulin resistance, meaning the body has been producing so much insulin for so long that uh, the tissues themselves don't even respond to the insulin. The second component is at some point after you make the pancreas work so hard by producing all this extra insulin because the cells can't receive it, is the pancreas starts to fatigue and it stops to produce insulin, stops producing insulin. So the only thing we can really do with that is for the short term, if we've got a patient that's in that diabetic state, we need to give them medication to tr- control their blood sugars because we don't want someone getting a heart attack or a stroke. Now, while we're doing that, this is really where we have the chance to really help them and make some real good lifestyle modifications. We can put them on something like the zone diet. So we can manage their, 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 their insulin levels and their blood sugars. We can put them on an exercise program. And an exercise program ideally should include some resistance training because resistance training does a lot to reduce insulin resistance. Resistance training also lowers blood sugar far more than cardio for the following reasons. When we're doing cardio, primarily we're burning fat as a source of energy unless the heart rate is above the lactate threshold. But so we're not really dropping blood sugar that rapidly. But when, well, to some degree with these guys, we are because they're, they're insulin resistant. But when we're doing weight lifting, for example, a squat, a deadlift, a big movement, we're actually burning quite a lot of carbohydrates. So in the process of burning the carbohydrates, we're emptying out the cells that are full and we're reducing insulin resistance. So weight training along with cardio um, is something that we want to do along with the right diet to try and help people that are insulin resistant and make them non-insulin resistant. Interesting. So when you talk about uh, some of the drugs and things that people take, especially for like powerlifting or bodybuilding, what, how, how are they manipulating insulin? I've always been curious about that as well. Ooh, well, so I guess we can break this down into two components. We can break it down into the anabolic steroids and their impact on insulin. Uh, and then, mm-hmm. And then we can also talk about insulin. So... This is probably the first time uh, I'll say this, and I absolutely hate saying this, 
Because for the most part, our bodies already produce too much insulin unless we're someone that's following the perfect diet. And anybody that's mm-hmm. following the bodybuilding diet, the typically you know higher protein, really high carb, low fat diet, even those that are not on steroids, for the most part, there's a there's a lot of insulin resistant with insulin resistance with this population. And I've measured the labs on thousands of bodybuilders, and even the ones that are natural. For the most part, I haven't seen people with very good lipid profiles specifically related to the diet. Because what the bodybuilders have figured out, and they've figured it out right, because there's, there's a lot of intelligence there, is that insulin itself, because it actually sends per amino acids or fat or carbohydrates into your tissues, can be a very anabolic hormone. So that's the reason you've seen bodybuilders do this low-fat, high-carb diet because what they're trying to do is they're trying to stimulate the muscles to grow and then they're trying to use any hormone they can to get bigger. But that's also the reason you can see a lot of bodybuilders that have these lean arms and lean legs and they have this little belly out of nowhere that they can't Mm -hmm. seem to get rid of it. Now, the other thing that bodybuilders have also figured out, and this is probably the most dangerous thing I've ever seen in sports, is when bodybuilders are taking anabolic steroids which means they're more likely to build muscle and less likely to build fat. Many of them have also learned they can take insulin with their anabolic steroid cycles. And in the process of do that, by taking an extra insulin, they can actually get bigger. I, I can't warn someone enough for this because, you know, taking insulin um, can drop someone's blood sugar and put them in a coma. And I've seen it happen numerous times. I've seen a lot of diabetic comas. But also that hyperinsulinism that these bodybuilders are doing is putting them then in a diabetic type state. Combine that with the anabolic steroids, which are pretty harsh on cholesterol, but they're also harsh on the number of red blood cells, and we can talk about that. Puts them in the perfect position to get a heart attack or a stroke. Yeah, see, I I, I knew that I'd heard about using insulin before, and I was kind of tying it together with all the stuff that, that you talked about. So it's, it's amazing, though, the length that some people will go to, isn't it? It is absolutely amazing, and I've taken care of a lot of bodybuilders, um, trying to keep them healthy, and what people will take with regards to a contest, it's not just the steroid. I mean, the steroids themselves, you know, there's, we can talk about steroids use in sports versus bodybuilding versus medical use, if you desire, but it's not just the steroids these bodybuilders are taking. They're taking steroids, they're taking speed, they're taking thyroid hormones, mm-hmm. They're taking asthma drugs, clenbuterol, which then affects the heart and the lungs. So these guys, and then they're taking injectable tanning agents. And the amount of drugs that goes into bodybuilding is more than anything that you could imagine in pretty much any other sport. Well, let's describe the difference between medical, first medical use of steroids and then mm-hmm. sports use of steroids versus bodybuilder use of steroids. So in the U.S., we can prescribe a few hormones. We can prescribe testosterone. We can prescribe oxandrolone, uh, which was always known as Anovar. We can prescribe stenozolol, which uh, is known as Winstrol. And we can prescribe nandrolone decanate, which is known as DECA. And we can prescribe oxymethylone, which is known as Anadrol 50. So they're basically the uh, medical, the, the anabolic steroids that we can prescribe for medical uses. And for medical uses, what I've seen these steroids do is astron- astronomically incredible. I've seen people with HIV that were wasting away. You give them some nandrolone, and all of a sudden they gain 10 pounds. Their immune system goes up. I have seen low doses of oxandrolone given to women that are so old and ready to go into the nursing home because they can't get on and off of the toilet or walk up and down the stairs in their house. I've seen them take low dosages of anabolic steroids, and all of a sudden they can climb up and down the stairs and avoid a nursing home. I've seen anabolic steroids used um, for burn victims that aren't healing and watch them heal per, almost miraculously overnight. I've seen it used post-surgery to help people heal. And I've seen it used uh, to combat the signs of aging where people just get weak and frail. And I've also seen them used to heal bone fractures that weren't healing, to heal injuries that weren't healing. So medical use of steroids, I am a massive fan. And I've, I've seen what they can do personally. So there's that. Now... Like I said, medical uses of steroids. Now, if I were to prescribe oxandrolone or Anovar to someone for medical reasons, I might give 5 milligrams a day. I might give 10 milligrams a day. I might push the dose all the way to 20 milligrams a day based on, on the condition. 
and we're monitoring their cholesterol. If their cholesterol gets bad while they're on it, we can fix their cholesterol. We're monitoring their liver enzymes. And done right in a clinical office, it's relatively safe. And, I mean, you, you can't guarantee someone doesn't get a heart attack or stroke, but for the most part, I believe these drugs are very safe when prescribed medically. Well, I mentioned in sports, people are taking steroids as well. For the most part, anyone you see in any professional sport is probably taking steroids. And Really? Yes. And it's not that hard be to, to, to actually do this because of the steroids I mentioned we can prescribe. Uh, for the most part, the strongest and most powerful of the steroids, like oxymethylone 50 or anadrol 50 or testosterone suspension, People only test positive for it for several days. So someone can take it right up to, the, say, a week before a competition and then just come off of that and then not test positive. So those big, powerful steroids are very easy to put someone on. Now, weaker steroids like Nandrol and Decanate, someone tests positive for 18 months. So we're not, we're not going to see that in the athletic community unless someone was getting their steroids underground, and when they got their steroids underground, they actually got the wrong steroid. So inside of professional sports, um, it's there. But again, in, in, in athletes, the dosages, steroid, uh, the dosages that people are taking of these steroids is very low because the athlete is only looking to get 10% stronger. They're looking for a performance edge. They're looking not to be in pain. They want to recover from their training sessions, and they're just trying not to get injured. That is vastly different than a bodybuilder that's trying to walk around with 50 pounds more on their body that they're supposed to. And the dosages of, say, 10 or 20 milligrams of Anovar for an athlete that somehow found their way to get a prescription for it or found it underground is different than the 50 to 100 milligrams a day a bodybuilder's taking, and the bodybuilder will take two mm -hmm. and three other steroids with that. Plus, if you look at the lifestyle, the athlete's doing some degree of metabolic conditioning or cardio every single day. The athlete's doing some mobility training. The athlete's eating a very healthy diet because they're not trying to be big outside of sumo wrestling and bodybuilding size is not really an advantage. So they're just trying to enhance their performance. So the dosages they're taking are very different, not to mention they're being closely monitored by their doctors. And what I mean by that is steroids really cause a few changes in the body. One is they have the body produce more red blood cells which is actually good to some degree because, you know, if you have, don't have enough red blood cells, you're anemic, and then you can't get enough oxygen to your tissue. But hormones like right. testosterone as well as anabolic steroids can make the body produce more red blood cells, and it does a good job of it. Now, at some point, the blood, you have so many red blood cells and you have so much of this color called hemoglobin in your body, and then hematocrit, which is the amount of dissolved stuff in your blood, can get so thick that I've seen a lot of these bodybuilders have what we call pancake syrup blood where it's just it's like syrupy because the blood is so thick and that predisposes them for heart attacks or a stroke now if they're being managed by their doctor if their blood gets a little thicker it's where the treatment is very easily they donate blood and in fact you know for the most part anyone on testosterone replacement probably should be donating blood at least twice a year to get rid of some extra red blood cells but most people don't know that and we can't just tell people, hey, by the way, just donate blood without knowing what their blood looks like because they could be anemic because they could have a bleed somewhere in their body and not know it. So, you know, being managed when someone's on steroids is kind of the, the real issue, is kind of important. But really what spooks me with regards to steroids is I spend a lot of time looking on the Internet. And, you know, our company provides strength and conditioning. And our strength and conditioning works, and the reason it works is there's no fluff. Uh, they're doing squats, they're deadlifts, they're doing push presses, they're doing power cleans, weighted pull-ups, they're doing big exercises that produce, tell the body to produce growth hormone and tell the body to naturally produce testosterone so people get much more muscular and leaner. It's not a hard thing to do. Now, when you see people on the doing these goofy booty workouts, for example, or doing these you know mm -hmm. concentration curl workouts and they're muscled up, 90% of the time, these people are all on steroids, and because they're on steroids, they look a certain way. So I think really my biggest issue with steroids is either they're not being monitored or they're for people that are trying to sell a fitness program or a supplement 
And they're trying to make the people believe that the supplement they're taking or the fitness program that they're, they're on is the reason they look a certain way. And that's yeah. really where I have an issue. Yeah. It's very predatory in that way. They, you know, it. you never know if someone, I, I mean, I think it's safe to say a lot of the people you see online on Instagram or whatever that are really trying to push up a, a program or a certain supplement, a lot of times they're, they're going to be on steroids and it's just sad because most people aren't going to realize it. I think those results really came from whatever product it is they're, they're trying to push. Yeah, and you can tell the difference if you know what to look for. So when you're looking mm-hmm. at a woman, if you don't see just a little bit of cellulite around the upper hip area, for a woman that's over 25, for the most part, they're taking a low dose of either Anavar or Winstrol. For a guy, what you can look at is the muscle density. If those muscles look hard and not a little watery, they're on an anabolic steroid. If they've got a big bloat on them and it doesn't look like it's fat, they're on an anabolic steroid. If they've got a good degree of acne, they're on an anabolic steroid. Anybody who's fat-free BMI is over 30 is taking an anabolic steroid. But it's not, I mean, those guys are easy to spot. I didn't realize until I had a practice where I was taking in a lot of patients that were on steroids that it was the 160-pound man whose biceps just looked a little too hard that was on anabolic steroids. And I had an incredible number of them come to me. I was doing some volunteer work trying to clean up a hormone clinic. And it was everybody from a Gold's Gym that was literally on steroids. And they weren't the people that wow. you would think about it. It was the people that just, the women that didn't have any cellulite, any cellulite around their upper hip area. Or it was even 150 and 160-pound men who just looked a little too lean. Mm-hmm. so it's really it's it's rampant i mean there's well over a million people in the u.s that are abusing anabolic steroids wow that's it's scary to think that they're just so accessible and that you know a lot of the, to the untrained eye i think that that's the biggest issue is that people that don't know what to look for like which is most people out there it's probably so much harder for them to for that thought to even cross their mind that oh this person is probably on steroids and this is achieving something that's unattainable to me, not being on steroids. And that's really where my big issue is, is there are either people in the gym that look a certain way and they're, cause, and they're causing everyone to feel bad about themselves. Why can't I look like that? Or people actually go to the gym, try and take care of their health. They can't look like this. They give up, in which case they're not exercising is the worst thing they could do for their health because they feel like they're not able to achieve something that's just not attainable without hormones. Look, it's not hard to get someone lean if they eat right and exercise. But that level of leanness and what they're going to look like is going to look very different in terms of muscle hardness, muscle density, muscle definition than someone that's taking different steroids. You can almost tell, actually you can tell, you can tell what steroids taking by what their actual body looks like. Interesting. And then something else I've heard before is that uh, one of the big telltales is that your your upper traps as in like closest you know to the top of your of your frame are going to be like unnaturally big i've heard that that's one of the biggest differentiating factors between uh taking a steroid um that could be but you want another dead giveaway and you can tell every time it's the upper body to lower body ratio and what i mean by that is and we knew this in the 80s in the 80s, there was a saying with regards to natural bodybuilding, if you want your arms to grow, train your legs. And the reason mm-hmm. was, and people didn't understand the endocrinology at the time, through hard exercise, and I mean a squat or a deadlift, what's actually going on is the body actually needs to adapt, and it needs to adapt by producing testosterone and growth hormone. And in the process of doing that, you burn fat and build muscle all over your body. So people knew years ago their workouts were very simple when they were trying to get big. They squatted, they deadlifted, both front squat, back squat, they did heavy lunges, they did heavy overhead presses, they did heavy bench presses, heavy bent rows, they did weight they did weighted dips and they did weighted pull-ups, and they did throw in, you know, five sets of heavy barbell curls per week. And that was it. And people got big and muscular. But when you go to the gym and you see someone with big muscular arms and and and, and no legs, he or she is on steroids. When you see someone and you look at them from the front 
and they've got these big pecs and shoulders and you look at them from the back and they've got this you know skinny back they're on steroids so whenever there's some degree of unproportion you will always know because the body just can't build that kind of muscle um without uh without hormones or a neuroendocrine response to exercise is that mostly just due to the fact that they're that's what they're emphasizing in their training and they don't have a balanced training regimen. And so the steroids are just, uh, just filling out the things that they're training the most. Yeah. So if we actually look at muscle growth, it's, it's actually not that complicated. It's different than strength training. Um, for muscle all you, to grow, all you really need to do is you need to stimulate it with a stressor. You need to feed it with protein and, and, and with, with enough protein and calories to actually meet your metabolic demands and you need the hormones to make the tissue grow. So if you're doing an isolation exercise and then you're taking, and you're, you're not going to get a neuroendocrine response, but if you're injecting testosterone and androlone, you've just injected your neuroendocrine response, poof, um, the isolation, whatever you train muscle in isolation is going to grow. Interesting. Yeah, I've heard that, uh, I've heard that analogy of the train your legs to make your arms grow and just that, there's, there's programs like that squat every day program, and they say that it's, the point is really just to increase your, your overall uh, growth, growth hormones and things of that nature. And here's the thing. To a small degree, they actually work. And what I mean by that is it does work, but if you don't balance out the, what you're actually doing, what happens is the muscles, will, after a period of time, will ultimately get overtrained. And as soon as they get overtrained, mm-hmm. yeah. then the testosterone and growth hormone um, go to nothing. And then cortisol goes up, and then you're effectively breaking down. So we we, we need gotta to make, be careful to make sure you're recovering. And yeah, so that that's the key is you know with any good strength and conditioning program, with or without steroids, but especially without steroids, uh, because steroids help people train harder and longer and recover from them better because their body doesn't pro- isn't going to stop producing them. We need to be sure, and I mean completely sure, that they're recovering. And so back to one of the first things you talked about, uh, I was curious how cortisol works into this whole mix. And because specifically I know hearing on a couple of different occasions that you want a little bit of cortisol uh, for muscle growth and overall health, but it's a balance between not uh, having a little bit and not having too much. Okay. So with regards to muscle growth, if you could have zero cortisol, you'd be better. Because cortisol, okay. um, all, what it really does is it breaks down muscle and raises blood sugar. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, we do need cortisol because cortisol does certain very important things in the body. Cortisol reduces inflammation. Um, cortisol is responsible to helps in, in the matter that we're thinking. So you can see people that have burned out their adrenal glands who have no cortisol, and they're just too tired to move. They can't get off of the sofa. So we do need cortisol. And there are drugs that bodybuilders take two or three days before a show that actually blocks all of their cortisol. And that's one of the reasons they look extra dry, but they also look like they're ready to die when they're on stage. Um, so, I mean, they have like, you see the 25-year-old bodybuilder, male or female, and they're covered in wrinkles and their skin looks like it's ready to, and they just look really sickly because they are, they're very close to death at that point. But they, they're, they're you know, if you like that look, you like that look. And I'm not here to say good or bad or indifferent. But, you know, being low on cortisol and low on estrogen and dehydrated, that is what that, that look sort of looks like, that, that dried out, ready-to-die look. Yeah. And it's just crazy how, you know, some of the things that uh, bodybuilders and people with those sort of goals do are just so counterintuitive to our overall health and fitness. And I don't think someone would realize that on, on the first place at that base level. And I've checked the labs on a lot of bodybuilders. And for the most part, I haven't found many healthy bodybuilders that were men. Now, the women were, so, were, were kind of different. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about how I could find a lot of healthy female bodybuilders. And, you know, here's the thing. A man might take 100 milligrams of oxandrol in a day. The, the woman might take 10. So one's inside of the prescribing guidelines. One is not. The, the guy has learned that he, he can take enough anabolic steroids that he can be lean with no cardio. The female cannot. So the female is always doing their cardio. So all of a sudden you've got lower steroids and lower cardio. The guy has learned that if I eat a lot and I get big and I'm taking a ton of steroids, I'm probably still not getting fat. But, you know, the woman can't take injectable testosterone 
along with Winstrel and Anavar all at the same time without, you know, getting a deeper voice and, you know, and, and a whole bunch of other nasty side effects. So the dosages yeah. are very low. So you're dealing with a person that's doing a lot of fitness related things like cardio and they're doing their bodybuilding program and they're eating a healthy diet and all of a sudden, you know, poof, they're on steroids, but they don't seem so sick. They actually look, in many cases, their labs and their blood looks pretty healthy. Again, I'm not advocating yeah, taking steroids for muscle building purposes right. or non-medical uses, but I've seen a lot of very healthy female bodybuilder figure people. Mm-hmm. How exactly do you measure just in general as someone is in good health, if you were just to say in a, in a concise sort of way, I guess? Yeah, so I'll mention this because there's certain labs that people that are on steroids can have their doctors run. Uh, I look mm-hmm. at their what's called their CBC, and that actually tells me what's going on with their red blood cells and white blood cells. But, I mean, do they have do they, or were they what they're supposed to be? I want to run what's called the complete metabolic panel, and what this actually checks for is liver and kidney function for the most part. And we don't want to be seeing, you know, any impairment in the kidney or the liver function. I run a cholesterol profile on these guys, and we want to see a healthy HDL because steroids themselves tend to lower L, the healthy cholesterol or HDL, and they also tend to raise the LDL or the unhealthy cholesterol. So I want to kind of see that stuff in balance. I want to see the triglycerides in, you know, in a somewhat healthy place. We can look at their testosterone and see what's going on, but you know, whether it's high or low, I'm not going to view that as a marker of overall health and wellness. I like to look at inflammatory measures in the body. There's several. Um, CRP gives us a good measure. And you know, I also want to make sure what I run a full hormone profile because testosterone can interfere with, say, thyroid hormone. I want to see what's going on. A heavy steroid cycle could really lower someone's levels of growth hormone in their body or it could raise it. Mm-hmm. So we're really trying to just basically check an entire metabolic panel. And, of course, if guys are on steroids, we probably want to check the prostate gland both through blood and through as well as, you know, through, through a manual exam, which is no fun for anyone. And then it's just an issue of if someone's going to be on steroids for long periods of time, obviously we're doing EKGs to check their hearts, but we might be doing an echocardiogram to check their heart and make sure it's working properly and they don't have any heart failure. We're going to be scanning their carotid arteries to make sure that they're not developing plaque there because if they're developing plaque there, we're, they're going to be doing it somewhere else. We're very concerned about sexual function, especially in the male, because if someone loses sexual function... It's either based on hormones or it's based on circulation. So uh, the inability of a male to get an erection is actually a very big risk factor for a heart attack because it goes back to, you know, really? if, you've got, okay. if you've got bad blood flow to the penis, you probably have bad blood flow to the heart and the brain. So there's a big risk for a heart attack or stroke. So these are some of the markers that we would actually do, plus we do an exam. Okay, interesting. So... Um just one of the last things I, I wanted to make sure we get to here. Uh, explain, we talked uh, about the cortisol, which is a catabolic hormone. Explain a little bit more about the catabolic versus anabolic hormones. These are both words we've mentioned a little bit, but not specifically uh, the differences and what's encompassed in each. Sure. So we can look at any kind of corticosteroid, what, either something the body naturally produces like cortisol or one of the many synthetic ones like Medrol or Celestone as a hormone that does the following. For the most part, the catabolic steroids shut off the immune system. And by shutting off the immune system, which is why we typically prescribe them, they shut off the inflammatory response inside the body. So you've got some inflammation in your shoulder, it's locked up. I give someone a subdeltoid bursa injection. They take that injection. The next thing we realize, the inflammation in the shoulder is gone. They feel great. But in the process of doing that, that catabolic steroid, not only does it shut down the immune system, it converts muscle and other lean body mass tissues to actually energy. And it does that through a process, something called glyconeogenesis, where it converts you know, protein into, into, into sugar. So we're actually eating muscles as well as, well as we're eating bones and we're, we're reducing inflammation and we're stopping immune responses. So that's what catabolic steroids do. What anabolic steroids do are kind of the exact opposite. In some cases, they boost immune system, although the uh, data behind that is not very strong. They tell the body to produce more bone, so more bone density. Um, They actually stimulate muscle growth with or without exercise. 
through a process called nitrogen retention. So basically we eat protein and that becomes nitrogen inside of our body and the steroids convince the body to basically store that nitrogen inside of our muscle tissues. So they're actually completely opposites. So we have one set that reduces inflammation and reduces the immune system and reduces protein synthesis and muscle retention. And we have the other one that's really promoting protein synthesis, bone synthesis, and muscle growth. Interesting. Okay. So what about uh, one of the catabolic hormones we talked about being adrenaline? And what exactly is adrenaline? And then as it relates to uh, epinephrine and norepinephrine are a part of adrenaline, if I'm correct? Right. So, So adrenaline or epinephrine and norepinephrine are actually a neurotransmitter. And there are times, so we have, we have two, we, our nervous system can be broken down to the things that happen automatically or autonomic and the things Mm -hmm. that we actually have control over. But if we look at the things that pretty much happen autonomically, it can be broken down into the, God, I hate going to this much depth, but either the sympathetic nervous system or the parasympathetic nervous system. Basically we'll, Mm -hmm. we'll break this down into the parasympathetic is when you go to a yoga class and you relax that's relaxation. That's parasympathetic. We need that. But we also need the sympathetic nervous system or the fight or flight response. We need to be able to prepare the body for combat. We need to be able to prepare the body to run away. We need to be able to prepare the body to defend itself. So that's where the sympathetic nervous system gets involved. So if you see a kid in the middle of the street and a car coming, our survival mechanisms is dump some adrenaline into the bloodstream, norepinephrine and epinephrine, Start doing some vasoconstriction to send more blood to the heart so you can run really fast and rescue that child. We absolutely need that. We also need that fight or flight because let's say someone were to chop off their hand in an accident. We don't want them to bleed to death in a period of, say, 60 seconds. So we want the sympathetic nervous system to try and close down those blood vessels to the extremity um, and send more blood to the heart so they bleed much slower. So the, there are, we absolutely need that sympathetic nervous system to do a lot of things. The problem is when that thing goes wacky. And what I mean goes wacky, like I said, you know, you need that to rescue a child. But where problems occur is, you know, if your boss yells at you, we don't need to be activating that fight or flight sympathetic nervous system. We really just want to relax. We, we don't need that at all. So it's not, it's not doing us any benefit. We don't need that sympathetic nervous system going haywire because we watched the movie and it panicked us. And we don't need that sympathetic nervous system going haywire because we had 14 cups of coffee because we didn't get a good night's sleep the night before. Or someone's pre-workout that they took that was so strong that they can't go to sleep that now they need to take something else to go to sleep to activate the parasympathetic nervous system. So Mm -hmm. for the most part in health and wellness, everything is about balance. Yeah, I agree. I agree for sure. Well, we're about up on our hour now but i thought it would be useful to talk about a lot of different stuff here but since the all-encompassing theme was the the body's hormones and balancing them maybe you could give us a a few tips to keep your health and wellness in balance and especially maybe as it relates to having healthy hormones sure so here's what i would say every one of us should exercise functionally and what i mean by functionally is the program should focus on our core. Our core is defined, say, everything between our shoulders and our mid-thighs. So standing exercises, things like standing presses, we still like the bent row, we still like the bench press, although it's not our favorite, weighted pull-ups, dips, squats, deadlifts, lunges, and metabolic conditioning because we need our cardio, but we really want to do interval training. So I would say from an exercise perspective, um, that's what we like. From a nutrition perspective, we want to balance that insulin and glucagon. So we are massive fans of Barry Sears' work with his own diet. He worked with 25 gold medalist Olympians. I follow it myself, and I have for about 15 years now, maybe 20. And for the most part, anybody who I've seen follow his own diet, I've seen their performance just explode. So I absolutely love that. Hormones are very important. So as we get older, uh, specifically over 30, We can see our family doctors, and our family doctors can check our hormones. They can check our testosterone. They can check our estrogen. They can check our progesterone. They can check our DHEA-sulfate. They can check our growth hormone levels. And under certain circumstances, if they're low, like a guy who's over 30 and his testosterone is low, um, 
he could consider testosterone replacement therapy if his physician's willing to prescribe it. Everything has its benefits and its risks, um, but uh, being able to optimize that hormone for many people can make a big difference in their life, but, you know, that's a decision they have to make with them and their doctors. So I would say that's pretty much, you know, yeah. the where, where we need to go. And I would say to not mess up our endocrine systems, not abusing anabolic steroids in our youth um, is kind of a good thing because what ultimately happens is whenever you take a hormone that's not natural to your body, your body sees that hormone and says, whoops, I've got more of what I need than I currently have, so it stops producing it. Yep. So if you're 30 and your testosterone is low, and your doctor gives you testosterone, you stay on that testosterone for the rest of your life, assuming you don't have a problem. There's no cycling. It's not a bodybuilding thing. They just they replace it to a youthful level, and you stay there, assuming your health is good, and you and, your, and the person and the doctor maintain that decision. That is very mm -hmm. different because their testosterone is already low. So if it's low, you're replacing it. Like a diabetic who needs insulin, you're giving them insulin, not for a week. You're giving it to them until, well, for, for general, if it's insulin, it's generally for the rest of their life because they don't have a pancreas that isn't producing it. So that's really where my view is on steroids. You know, don't take them unless you need them. And that way, if you need them, they actually work. And if someone is going to take them, make sure they, they know what those prescribing guidelines are. So the dosages they're actually taking are inside of those prescribing guidelines, not five and 10 times more than that. Make sure their physician knows they're taking the steroids. You know, we're trained to be medical professionals and not judgmental. We may say, look, we don't recommend you take them, but if you are taking them, at least I can check your labs, and if your cholesterol is bad, I can treat your cholesterol. If your blood's too thick, I can make you donate blood. If your blood's so thick that you can't donate blood and they won't take it, I can write a prescription for therapeutic phlebotomy. So I would say, you know, always, you know, think, always try and, you know, try and do everything right, and I think I'll close that with some advice that was given to me by a martial arts instructor in Israel. And it was the first day we were all really excited to be training with some of the best Krav Maga practitioners in the world where they founded it. And he said, before we train, I want to impart this. I want you to eat right, think right, and train right. And he said, look, we're going to explain to this to you. He said, if you eat right, you'll be healthy. He said, if you're healthy, you'll be in a position to do whatever you need to to take care of your health. He said, you're more likely going to die from a bad diet than you are from an attack. But if you're out of shape and part of eating is necessary to be in shape. So we need you to eat so you can be healthy enough to defend yourself if it need be. And then he said, I need you to think right because I don't want make you guys making bad decisions. He said, more importantly, you know, we're all training you to be lethal killers and we can't have you killing people. He said, so I need you to think right how to, how to avoid danger. I need you to think right how to not be mm -hmm. arrogant. And I need to really put you in a position that, yes, we are training you into being very lethal, but you'll never need to use this unless it's to defend the life of yourself or someone else. And then we needed to train right because if you're not healthy, you can't do anything. But if you're improperly trained, you'll never be able to defend yourself. So we need you to eat right, think right, and train right. And if you can do that, you'll be healthy for the rest of your life. And that was some of the best advice yeah. I've ever heard. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that's why, even though I my introduction to fitness was weightlifting and resistance training, now I think it's so important for me to, to do that sort of stuff, but also make sure I'm doing some yoga and meditation and taking care of my uh, well-being, not only physically, but mentally and emotionally as well. I think the body is so much more tied together and feeds off each other more so than anyone realizes, even in the sense that exercising and, you know, making sure you treat your body right is the first key to mental health. And I think it's just all tied together in that way. Yeah, I, I, I think that's the key. The body is one piece and it's all tied together. When someone asks what muscle you train, to me it's like, Muscle. I trained the body. Body's mm -hmm. one piece. But, you know, a real athlete or a real warrior trains every day. If it's a rest day, mm -hmm. they could be doing some meditating. They can be thinking about how to uh, better perform something. They can think about where their gaps are in terms of knowledge and try and, try and fix yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. They, they, I love that too. So I feel like every day we should strive to get better in every way. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more, Mike. Thanks for coming on again. I think it was a very informative and wide-ranging conversation, and I'll be looking forward to talking to you again. Thanks so much, Jake. This has been the What's Your Story podcast. I'm Jake Parker. 
I hope you enjoyed the show and will tune in again next time. If you're so inclined, please send this episode to a family member or friend you think might enjoy it. And it would really be awesome if you could rate, review, and or subscribe to the podcast. It sure helps me out a ton. Thanks.